this podcast, Strange, Rare, and Peculiar, is for kind of those in the know about homeopathy, deepening your knowledge, bringing you more information about what you need to know, and maybe what you can leave aside about homeopathy. Homeo what? Homeo what? Yeah, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Oh, yeah. I like that as a start. Oh, yeah. Hello, hello, hello. Here we are. Fantastic. Yeah. Episode 184. At least. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Tell me about your morning. My morning. Our morning started with a very interesting... uh, Well, it wasn't really a wake-up. I was already long awake, but... Incident. There was an incident, and that was, um, there's a dog. Wait, that's loud. Stirring my coffee. You're stirring your, your mud? You have mud? Yeah. Yeah. But it's really, I bet that's really loud on the thing. And care. you're stirring it with a fork. 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 I knew. Yeah. There we go. Anyway, so there, there was a dog, so a dog showed up yesterday, mm-hmm. um, and he's so sweet. He was there 5.30 yesterday morning. He was sleeping in our lavender. He's absolutely beautiful. He looks to be like a pit bull. Kind of, he's very tall. He's He seems to have some sort of pit bull in him. And he's leggy. He's unneutered. He is shy. Um, and he was around all yesterday. We were, he's got a leash on him. And um, anyway, so I fed him yesterday. And when you said he turned up, you mean? He just was in our yard. Right. Yeah. And um, a stray. A stray. And of course, you know how I feel about strays. I want them all. I mm. name them. I feed them. And it's really bad. It's really, really bad. I know. Yeah. I know. I can't help it. Anyway, so we're trying to deal with him. But this morning, so then yesterday, he was, um, he disappeared last night. Oops, wait, I've been instructed to move closer to the microphone. How's that? Okay. Mm-hmm. He, he disappeared last night. I've got some neighborhood folks from one of our neighborhood Facebook groups who are you know, who are the dog rescuers. Um, anyway, he was back this morning, but what happened was he was, he was, he had his head in a hosta. I heard him barking like mad. And I thought he had one of our cats. Freaked out, ran downstairs. Woke me up. Woke you up. You ran downstairs. From my deep slumber. Oh dear, your deep slumber. Yeah. Anyway, what? Uh, and what do you mean anyway? He'd also gone through four of the garbage. So bags. we had a big party on Saturday. So there's a ton of rubbish, <laughs> and the dog got ripped the rubbish. It was all the driveway instead of gravel was rubbish. Rubbish, and trash. Yeah, tra- <laughs> thank you. Yeah, it was like a, it was a mess. Anyway, this so. So What's there's the that. The, story? the point of the story was that you went back to bed with a cup of tea, and I came to visit, <laughs> and you were watching a YouTube video. Can you just explain what you were watching? Yeah, those videos <laughs> where you watch, you know, you, the 20 minutes of your life, you never get back again, but you're watching people excelling in the work that they do. <laughs> you know, like cutting hedges straight. Yeah. <laughs> And, and driving a forklift in a straight line. But the best part about it is the title. It was like 20 satisfying minutes. Yes. They always say it's going to be satisfying, right? That's the thing. 20 satisfying minutes of people. What was it being efficient at their jobs or excelling at their jobs? Yeah, excelling at their jobs. So I made fun of you, you right, did. as I do. And so then I sit down next to you and I open up my iPad and I start watching the 
the remainder of the video I was watching, which is on efficiency and note-taking, using the Notes app and all of the hidden features in the latest version. We get we get some questions oh my um, gosh. on this podcast, and one of them is, you know, what do you guys do to relax? <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> you keep our weird is, yeah, yeah. Oh, my Lord. YouTube gets a thrashing. Oh, I lost, I had to, um, <laughs> I, I've signed into your... You have like the paid for YouTube. And so I got into that and then I lost like the algorithm that had been built up for me over time. I mean, you you should see the look on Denise's face when she gets a YouTube uh, channel full of rugby clips. Cricket and cricket clips. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. From the 1970s. mm -hmm. I had to start all over again with some of the weird things that I like on YouTube. My friend Jerry, you know, in New York. Yeah. He he just sends me random stuff. He'll send me a clip of Dennis Compton. You've never heard of Dennis Compton or Colin Cowdery from 1974 <laughs> facing <laughs> Jeff Thompson. You know, it's like just unbelievable. I'll get it at two o'clock in the morning. Awesome. He's doing the same thing as I am. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Anyway, that's not what we're here to talk about today. Although... It was interesting because I was thinking about, well, we decided we were going to answer some of your questions, of which there have been so many, and for which we are very appreciative. Because um, it's really fun, first of all, to know that anybody's listening to this. We'd do it anyway, even if nobody was listening, because it's fun. But what are the things that, you know, we hope people really think, you know, like we hope that this gets you to just think and ponder some of the questions, um, you know, like we do. Like my research question, what the hell is homeopathy? Well, there's that. Yeah. But there is, I mean, I mean, the, I suppose, let's start with this one. From, if you could ask Hahnemann one question, what would it be? Yeah, so I, I do ask him a lot of questions. If, um, it, for those of you who might not know this, I have a um, painting of Hahnemann. Well, it's in the library. It, it, my desk used to be, my office used to be in the library, and it was behind me. And I would have conversations with him. Um, especially during the time when I was writing about the alchemical history of homeopathy. um, And the question, so actually this is, that's slurping. (laughs) (laughs) My God. Denise doesn't really appreciate my soup drinking antics. The slurp, it's it's so. But I learned how to drink soup in Japan Japan, and Malaysia. Yeah, okay, fair enough. So it's a sign. But first of all, it's not soup. (laughs) Second of all, you're in Philly. <laughs> okay, so so the question of being, gosh, we're a little punchy today, aren't we? Uh huh. Oh, and oh, I can't sit because actually, can I start? I want to just start with one other small adage because you started by saying, oh, people ask, what do we do to relax? Um, there's something really amazing that is happening in my world, oh. which is. Um, which is causing me to sit funny today. Um, but I um, uh, I was in a dance company back 100 years ago in the 80s. and um, Well, a bit more than that. You should more than 100 years ago. No, not what? more than 100 years ago. Give a bit more context to that. These to the, folks think that you're a nerdy library goer. Oh, oh yeah, but I, I come from... I come from Danceteria. <laughs> I anyway, so we so I was in this dance company in New York in the eighties and and we had we just like literally had the best time. These people were like everything, everything in my world for a long time. And 
you know, we, we were really inseparable. And so the choreographer, Patrick, has remained my best friend. We are in our 39th year of friendship. And um, recently, we decided that we were going to do our warm-up from the 80s again. And, and, and some of our, you know, some of the dancers, a couple of people that danced with us, you know, everybody's older now. Patrick just turned 69 in April. One of our friends has Parkinson's. Um, one of the guys that danced with us, I actually don't know what he, I, I, I don't know what his diagnosis is, but he's got some neurodegenerative issue. And so it's kind of like, you know, here we are turning back up again, 35 years later, and there were two things that really struck me. One was muscle memory. I cannot believe, like, we're piecing back together this warm-up that we did every day. Mm. Um, and, and because we haven't worked out how to get the music to play on Zoom, and they're just two of us working together, the choreography, it's, um, it's really been amazing to see, like, where the mem- that the memories come, like, where, you know, what we're missing. And then the other thing is just that you can you can do things that you don't think that you can do. I mean, I've had a daily yoga practice for a really long time. But, and so I feel like I'm sort of limber in my body. But what you do in a dance thing and what you do in yoga are really different. And so it's different muscles and and there's a different way of being in in the body. And I I have to say it's been it is like the best thing. Can I can I give my perspective? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cuz you're you've Well, I've walked into into the room when you're engaging in this kind of activity. Yeah. Twice. Yeah. And the noises. Oh my gosh. The noises. And then the laughing have really struck me as let's call it as it is two old folks. Yeah. <laughs> two really old folks trying roll to roll back the years to yeah. your, I mean, how old, how old were you? Oh my you gosh. In? I was 18 when I joined that company. So 18. You're 18 in yep. New York in 1980 something. 1983. I started in the company in, in, um, Early 1984. Right. Yeah. And... I just turned 18. So that's 30 years ago. That's almost 40 years 40 ago. 40 years ago. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 80s. 39. And um, oh, the, the noises. Oh, my gosh. And uh, and then the, exactly what you said, because, I mean, I did have a little look. Just a, <laughs> a wee one. And uh, the muscle memory. Yeah. You know, it's incredible. I mean, all I- of those things, all of that activity we do is... I think when the nervous system is growing and firing and linking at those at those ju- at those developmental points. Yeah. You'll you'll never lose them. Yeah, you know, I mean I haven't used ballet French in a really long time and I thought, "Oh, and you know, that's just that's the language that, mm. you know. Yeah, it's really it's just been so much fun, but <laughs> the reason I brought it up is because I'm having a hard time sitting because <laughs> I'm sitting with a cat on my lap and boy, do my hips hurt. I haven't had to turn out my hips into a full second position for a long time. Anyway. Can fun. I also just mention that these two folks, Denise and Patrick, were in the 80s. I mean, Patrick and yourself would have turned heads. I mean, you're both pretty hot. Oh, uh, listen to you. Well, I've seen photos of you. That's really sweet of you. I mean, still pretty hot. I just think of it as being like I had '80s hair to end all '80s hair. Did you? Oh gosh, yeah. How long did it take to do my hair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't remember the styling being a big thing, but I had a faux hawk, um, like a mohawk, but I could wear it down to cover it because I had a job, you know. And then when we go to dance it would be like, 
you know, I had this like, it was like a paste, so I could make my hair stand up in, in say, a full faux You need to talk about Madonna's ass and danceteria. Oh, no, Madonna. So she used to go to the place where we, she used to take the classes and where we danced. Anyway, let's leave her out of it for today. But but I have to say, <laughs> I have been listening to, someday I'll tell the Madonna story of when, um, oh, it's just, it's a whole, it's a hilarious story. But we've talked too much about stuff, not homeopathy. All right. Well, it's all homeopathy, especially the uh, the dancing. Why didn't you say dancing? Uh, You're know, getting yeah. too Americanized. Not dancing. Uh. <laughs> anyway, because I say dance in Australia. Oh, oh, okay. Dance. Yeah. In dance. the UK and New Zealand. Yeah. And dance over here in oh. Aussie. Oh, fair enough then. Anyway, so that was just that little aside was, first of all, inspiration. Because if you think you can do it, I mean, I'm surprised we can. Mm. We didn't think we could stand up and do some of the things that require a level of balance. Um, and he was really hesitant and, and did not he's totally do it. back into it, isn't he? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can, I, I can see that the summer's gone. Gone. Wait till we get everybody else. But, but muscle memory and memory. and Hahnemann. And Hahnemann. So, well, there are a couple things. So it's, there are a few questions that were asked. One of them, you started with the biggest one, what do you want to ask Kahneman? But there was another question. Can we just sideline a little so that there at least is some semblance of a connection to this preamble? Mm-hmm. Um, studying and developing muscle memory. Because oh. one of the things that, one of the questions is around studying Materia Medica. And... Oh, you mean that link between uh, the YouTube things we were watching and learning materia medica and also and muscle memory oh look there's a thread all right so it's like case analysis (laughs) always looking for the thread so and maybe this is something to ask kahneman okay here's how it all comes together you ready Mm. i'm gonna try this would he recognize what we do today as being homeopathy oh my god yeah he would yeah he told told not all of it but not all of it, I think. No, not the three-hour consultations. No, and not the, the English lit version of case analysis. Mm. Um, but the study, one of the questions was, would I show my Materia Medica notebooks from when I was a student? I want to ask you, what were you, what do your Materia Medica notebooks look like? Uh, I've still got them. I mean, they've all, I scanned them all. Did you? Yeah, one rainy Easter. Uh-huh. And... Um, you know, scan of just page after page went through. Yeah. And uh, they are, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I don't really look at them because my Materia Medica, my initiation into Materia Medica yeah. was uh, Janet Snowden and Misha, uh-huh. uh, David Mundy. Same. So I found that the, the, while very engaging lectures, yeah. the... Uh, I don't, I, this is not a critique, but it was. I found that the personalization, the storytelling around the lycopodium type and the mm. echinacea type, became less and less important to me over the years. Yep. As I learned more and more about reading provings, understanding affinities. Yeah. And those that that information was in the those lectures as well. Totally. But I think I've got them in the in my memory. Mm. And so I don't actually refer. So my my 
folders, my um, Materia Medica folders, yeah. are now electronic buckets mm-hmm. with files in them. And I, I've got into that habit. It just sort of works with my brain. So, I've look, I do have my notes from yeah. the day, but then I've got this article, these images, right. you know, essentially a Materia Medica portfolio. Yeah. Um, the one assessment that makes students I know, buckle at the knees, yeah. but um, it's which what, it yeah. should, which should be, which is funny, right? It's like the one that shouldn't be a buckle at the knees assessment. Well, no, it depends. Yeah. yeah. So, but what about you? Well, I know I can answer your question because I carry those <laughs> bastards around. <laughs> He's talking about my notebooks because yeah. I have them in physical notebooks. I've carried them from place to place. Yeah. So many so, times, but you I, use them. Yeah, I totally do. And they're paper, right? They're paper in plastic sleeves. Mm. But I only use one part of them, mm. right? So let's just, for the uninitiated, right, if people are kind of new, coming to homeopathy school. So what we're talking about is the way that we study remedies. Mm. And it is, it's a lot of information that you've got to sort of catalog in your brain. And a lot of people say, well, you don't need to memorize it because... You, you just have to be able to find it, which is true, but you need a starting place. And so there are things that you kind of need to remember. And and so one of the things that I was taught early on, and this was a Misha that I learned from Misha, although yeah. in a different way, was mapping a remedy. But but we were taught, you were taught the same way, the spoke and the hub and spokes idea. Yeah, that was kind of uh, an agreed upon good way to do it. Yeah. Yep. So the idea was you would find sort of the central theme in a remedy. You would put that in the middle and then you would have, and like a circle around it. And then you would have like spokes coming off and then you would attach other ideas to it, which now, linked sorry, ideas. linked ideas, linked. Things that were linked. I thought you said lint as in like dryer lint. No, that's the stuff in my belly button. Ew. God, between the slurping and that, like people don't need to know. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Anyway, um, linked ideas. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of where it started. And I've, I still do it. I map anytime I learn a new remedy, I map it just like I map every case. Right. It's totally a visual thing for me, but I don't hub and spokes anymore. Yeah. But you have a mapping style par excellence. It's, I, I think it's, it's, which is yeah, really good. But you know what? It's like it goes back to the dance thing. No, it's not. It's a bit like your reverse parking. It's one of your superpowers. Oh, that's my superpower. Mm. I can park in a parking spot smaller than my car, mm. which really isn't good. But you live in New York long enough, mm. and like it's survival. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, but um, no, I actually think it's muscle memory. Mm. This goes back to the dance thing, right? Mm-hmm. So if you just do it all the time. So if you map every remedy you learn and you map every case that you see, even on the occasions where you know the remedy that you're going to give because there's, you know, sort of an obvious choice, which is probably less than 10% of the time. But I'll still map those cases because I the maps are an integral part of sort of how how I can see it's like it that's what burns it in my mind. I think it's the process too. Well, it's the process and using a different part of your brain. That I think that's the it. The opposite, you know. Let's say your case taking your notes would be right brain activity, but the left suddenly gets engaged with the colors and the, the yep. themes. I mean, I'm thinking of some folks won't know what I'm talking about, but you know, the the maps that I've seen you come up with are pretty special. 
Oh, thanks for saying that. That's really sweet. Mm. I, I mean, this is sort of lopsided because you've complimented me a number of times today, and I've pointed out grossness in things that you've done. It's just the way it is. It's I'm used to it now. Really sorry. Um, yeah, I apologize. Huh? But but honestly, though, sometimes this, the noises are a lot. <laughs> anyway, but um, this 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 idea of mapping, though, is a really this is such an important part, of, for me anyway, of the study of Materia Medica and case analysis. Yeah. And it's changed over time. Like, if if I were to look at all of the things that I put into my folios for my Materia Medica notebooks, what I, so what I would do is I had, I had the map of the remedy on one page. Yeah. And then I had, and so, like, imagine there are these plastic sleeves in a three-ring binder. Yeah. So then you would turn the other page and you would have on the, in that same folio... I would print out from, at that time, Mick Repertory, Materia Medica. Like a, an excerpt from Materia Medica. So Fadak or someone. And, and at the time, I used a lot of Rajan Sankaran. And it was from The Soul of Remedies, I think. Or maybe Spirit of Homeopathy. No, Soul, Soul. of Remedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because at that time, you know, 20-some years ago, there was so much of this emphasis on what we then called, well, probably still people do, the central delusion of the case. And there was a real emphasis on the mind part. But but what's interesting is that the maps didn't emphasize that. They were mm. kind of like, you know, uh, like an old school, like 19th century case analysis, right? Like what are the, what are the features of a remedy? And then then there would be the story. And I think with some of those with Sankaran, like I still remember the story. Like I could, like Lakhaninam, for example, he tells the story of an Indian woman who um, is, has a darker complexion, right? So that would have been at a certain time considered to be less, you know, desirable. Therefore, she would have the, you know, and like those stories, just like you said about learning mm. Materia Medica from folks like Misha or Janet or whatever, they stick in your mind. Isn't it? It's a fine line because, you know, what you want is your primary teacher to be able to give you examples of the use of a remedy clinically. Yeah. And so that's essentially, well, that's what happens when you stand up and you give a lecture. Okay, this, the, I had this person, yeah. they had these symptoms, they responded to lycopodium, I'm going to tell you about that. Yeah. Right? And so you tell the story and then... You'd say, I've seen this feature in a number of other cases as well. Yeah. But it's there, It's quite a fine line between that and, you know, Miss Pulsatilla. Right. We, there was a great moment in clinic the other day, Bex, um, who just finished her year one full time. And she's just, she's fantastic and she's fun. And, mm. and with one of the things about, oops, my phone's ringing. One of the things about... Um, one of the things about knowing your students, like being part of a community also is when you get to know people, you know that there are people who can like take it when you push back. Yeah. Mm. Cause which is just part of like, come on now, we're going to learn this. And Bex the other day said something like, Oh, and I saw this client and I thought, yeah, total. She's like such a phosphorus. And I was like, Bex. And she goes, Oh no, wait, I'm going to say it a different way. And then she was like, there are aspects of the phosph- of the remedy phosphorus that I could see clearly in. I like that. It's like such a total subtle thing, right? And I love that I could give Bex a nudge because I know, you know, she's like so on it. And and it's like these little subtle shifts in language that I think help us to deepen our learning. Mm. Yeah. 
But if we if we focus on, and I think um, and I think this is hard sometimes for for um, for folks that stay in that learning the type too long. Like that's really helpful in the beginning. Mm. And then it, Jeremy shared had um, he on one of his uh, what were they called the eight R or something? It was first seven R. I forget what the title was, but he did like a series of Rant webinars. Was one of them. Oh, that's right, his ranting, and it was about sort of how do we get back to our roots? That's what it was, right? Mm-hmm. And I loved these, and I remember one day I was listening to one while I was walking the dog, and and it was it was such a good one because he was talking about. Vitolkas and the Stolen Essences. And this idea, you know, that George Vitolkas did this really cool thing in the 80s, right? In the 80s. 79, he went to Esalen the first time. Okay. And then 80, 81. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this idea was, oh, and Esalen is in Cal- Northern California. And, is it Central or Northern California? Mm, no, I, I always, I'm not a Californian, so I think what I think is North and what I say is North is often not what's known as anyway but sort of that during that time of a lot of the i want to say sort of hippie and spiritual kind of but not really because a lot of those folks who were there were all medical you had to be a doctor at that time anywho but what what was coming out of these teachings was around what what he then called the essence of the remedy which was essentially the psychological profile, although when you look at his Materia Medica, it's so much more than that, right? Hmm. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I mean, with that book, it's essentially what Bill Gray wrote down yeah. at the time. And I think uh, it would have been interesting to have been there, but I have a suspicion that the lectures were a bit more broader yeah. than just those mental essences. Because that's what happened. And it's, they it really got passed down... I think that's a lot of what you see in um, in Morrison's Blue Book. In the I think so too. You know, for people who have um, Roger Morrison's desktop book. guide to what is it? <laughs> Keynotes and confirmatories. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Which is like the CHC test bible. Everybody uses that for their um, for their Materia Medica. But it's those the intro. So much of it, I think, comes from mm. the mental and emotional stuff. That's often the you know, but. But what Jeremy talked about in one of those R's was how that sort of profile business is super helpful in year one of learning homeopathy because you need something to hold on to and you need, you need an anchor, right? And I think that's what the stories also do. They give us an anchor. That's so a we good, can, really good point, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. And then as you mature, you, you, don't, you don't really use that anymore. It's sort of, it's not that helpful. Like to just think of like a podium and the likes a podium, you know, and, and having, you know, being a bully and kicking the dog. Well, you know, like people sort of feel like a, the, the mental has to be there. Mm. The mental profile as opposed to a symptom, like dictatorial as opposed to the whole big profile. And then you could miss a really simple case of, you know, of a liver issue. Totally. Right? A digestive issue. So, so as we go along and we learn more, I think we use completely different resources. If I'm studying a remedy that I'm not so sure of, if I want to understand it quickly, you know, I, I do have a process. It's interesting because, I mean, I, I usually start with a substance. Mm. And why that's important is every now and again something pops up in your repertory and you, you don't know what it is. 
And the thought that I have is, oh, okay, you know, let's look in a general, a, a useful, general, yeah. quick, useful keynote book. Is it in Boricky? No, it's not. Okay. Is it in Morrison? Oh, it's not there either. And so then you realize, well, hang on, this is a substance that possibly has newer information about it. So I usually start with a substance. So in other words, you're not talking about doctrine of signatures. No, but I do want to know what it is. Yeah. 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 Um, just to describe the doctrine of signatures is, is comes from an ancient principle that what, whatever the substance is, will have some sort of tells as to how it is useful for healing. So well, for centuries, clinical decision-making was often based on, on, a feature of the doctrine, yeah, of signatures of all sorts of different stuff from na- uh, from nature, and Hahnemann- uh, right up into uh, well, right up into Hahnemann. I mean, Hahnemann's proving methodology is directly related to trying to get away from that. Exactly, yeah. Hahnemann was against the doctrine of signatures, but and it's but a feature, a core feature of Galenic medicine and Paracelsian, right? Also, yep. Hmm. So, so Hahnemann was saying, well, actually. I mean, that kind of goes to the aphorism 20 idea of you can't, with your intellect, understand what the curative properties of a substance will be. Yeah. It's only through the proving that we get that information. I mean, basically, you get that, you know, the 153, the strange, yeah. rare, and peculiar. So, to- totally. But still, the, I do want to know about the substance. Yeah. So, I do want to know what the plant looks like or the... You know, I was having a chat with some students yesterday and we were discussing sepia pretty quickly, just a bit of a review. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a couple of really interesting questions came up about can you extract the ink from the creature without killing it? Oh. Exactly. As, you know, I never even um, questioned that. My my guess would be no because it's a sack of ink that's... Yeah that's um embedded in the body and that's really what we use you know that that dense um ink and, and we use it to make pasta uh and <laughs> yeah photos stuff ink but um so i i that's where i start yeah i start there and then i don't want to get too attached to it because yeah then i don't want to see you know i'm not going to make too many links between Features of the creature or the plant and chosen cherry-picked symptoms right. that just you know happen to fit. So and then and then you've got to go to the proving at some point. Yeah, mm. you know a lot of times with case analysis, people stop at the repertorization. You know we spend a lot of time oh talking God. about the repertory is mm. not an oracle. You know it doesn't give you the answer. It just you've got to you've got to work it mm. so that it gives you information that you then have to track down. Now, you're a million miles away from where you started. You started with Hahnemann, asking a question of Hahnemann, and then you got to Materia Medica. Well, because I think... Studying Materia Medica. Yeah, because, you know, the way that we use Materia Medica, you know, back in Hahnemann's day, he, it was, they would have proving symptoms, some clinical symptoms, but mostly proving symptoms, and, and this index, and you would match the constellation of symptoms, and... I mean, this is sort of not including chronic diseases as, you know, as, as a big factor that happened in his later um, evaluations, but there were less remedies. And he, in the beginning, was working with a smaller subset of principles, right? So, so I think 
like the way that we like the way that a student or a practitioner studies Materia Medica, I think it's we can compare it to the arc of Hahnemann's journey because he started out with a really simple idea, right? So this idea was just, you know, an aha moment while, you know, translating Cinchona in Cullen's Materia Medica and having a recognition around that, you know, similar. And by the time you get to Paris, even before you get to Paris, by the time you get to chronic diseases, I was just teaching chronic diseases, the book to the Taco Tuesday crowd on Tuesday night. And, you know, I've changed how I teach chronic diseases, the book. I had to stop teaching it for a couple of years because I was too in the weeds and I needed a different perspective. And then this moment of like, oh, wait a second, the book. Yeah, you need to understand how the book evolved and what's in it and how to use it and so forth. But you also need to understand where Hahnemann was along the way so you could see, so you can read through the, you know, the, the, the simplicity of it to see the depth of it. Right. And so, so now we kind of come around now to questions to ask Kahneman. Right. So (laughs) I know scary. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm having this email correspondence with um, an Australian is Peter Berryman. Is he Australian or is he English living in Australia? No, he's Kiwi. He's a Kiwi. Oh, okay. So there's a, what's that? Pete. Pete. So um, I met him a few years ago. Um, Somehow he reached out to me because he had heard one of my talks where I was talking about Hahnemann and alchemy. And we've maintained some correspondence and um, we saw each other again when I gave a talk to the faculty of homeopathy, um, the London group. British group. Anyway, so he asked a very interesting question and it's about, so he's, he's very much into the alchemical history of homeopathy through the lens of Paracelsus. My, my work suggests that Paracelsus was not a part of Hahnemann. Hahnemann fought back against Paracelsus, but I think what people take that idea to be therefore alchemy, when that's not the case. Right. Right? It's just that there's a lot of, there are a lot of alchemists over thousands of years doing lots of different stuff. And Hahnemann, over time, picked up some of those threads. He didn't start there. Yeah? He most certainly ended there. I feel pretty confident about that. And I think he hit his stride with it, with chronic, with the time he was writing chronic diseases. So like 1816 to 1828 is when everything shifts. He gets more into mineral remedies. He leaves the plants behind, except for, for the most part, not exclusively, but plants that were useful in the treatment of venereal diseases, acquired venereal diseases. So syphilis and psychosis and chronic diseases. So, so the conversation with Peter is really interesting because it's, it's like, well, there are all of these sort of historical factors to be considered, including Constantine Herring, who has the you know second largest collection of Paracelsian materials in the world. And so I think this is how I ended up really looking into Herring because it's he went he took a different direction. He took a different trajectory. And that being said, Lippi followed Her- followed Hahnemann very closely, but I have not found any evidence of Lippi and 
the alchemical interpretation of things. I don't think so. Straight up medic. Yeah. Yeah. And and great homeopath. Mm-hmm. And and used homeopathy in this really sort of incisive way. Like very just like cuts to the chase, no fancy business, whatever, and, and really true to core principles. So so the question for Hahnemann, I think, is a different question than than a lot of people would ask. So for example, most of the work it took it a long time in kind of going through other people's sort of explorations of what some people would call the alchemical history of homeopathy, but it all has to do with, it all intersects with vitalism, right? The vitalistic principles and sort of a spiritualization of homeopathy. And it, and I think it's really anchored in what a 19th century British and psychotherapeutic sort of Freud, Jung, all of that, right? Including the collective unconscious and all those things that we've talked about in the past. And so the, the question that I would want to ask Hahnemann wouldn't be, were you a vitalist, right? That's, you know, when I talked to Peter Morrill and he said to me that time, oh, that old chestnut. <laughs> I love that. But that is a question that often comes up. Was Hahnemann a vitalist? Was Hahnemann a spiritualist? Was Hahnemann, you know, all... I think it's very, I think it's a very, very different origin story. And my questions would be around not just what were his influences. I mean, I'm, those threads sort of come up, but where did he get in the synthesis of it all in his last years? And where did he think we could take it? Right? Because, you know, when people say, uh, you know, homeopathy is so old, we need a contemporary way to apply it, blah, 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 blah. I'm not so sure about that. I think it's more, what are the, what is possible? What it, What is possible within what we do so that we can figure out how to get there? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So the question is? The question is, is kind of what, well, what the hell is homeopathy? Nice. What, right? From not, from the beginning, you know, law of similars, on through to, you know, all those evolutions that Hahnemann made over time, because he goes from similars as the first principle to, uh-oh, some of these substances are similar but toxic, therefore, mm-hmm. has to come up with the pharmaceutical preparation, right? Does a completely different course of research, mm-hmm. which ultimately leads to chronic diseases, Right. Um, and I think that I think I'm pretty sure that that's how the connection comes. Is that by 1816, you know, it's only six years after the publication of the first Organon, Hahnemann is recognizing not just that cases were that people were relapsing and that he hadn't capital C cured these cases, but if you follow the parallel trajectory of the evolution of pharmacy, right, you start to see the subtle changes he made to the making of the medicines over time that carried forth all the way to the very end with 50 millesimal potency, right? But also trituration of soluble substances to the standardization of the number of succussions. Do you know what I mean? So so over time, Hahnemann's making parallel and integrated discoveries of how to do this medicine. And, and I think what's often surprising to people is what he left behind, mm. yeah? Like a lot of plant remedies, very few plant remedies. And so when you see a contemporary homeopath kind of 
staking their entire career on the study of plant remedies. It's like, okay, I mean, great. I'm sure we're going to find some exciting things that will help a person or two or 20 or 100. But is that connected to where Hahnemann ultimately got? Is that going to help us? You know what I mean? Like the emphasis on Materia Medica in homeopathy. In other words, if I keep finding more and more and more remedies. Yeah. It's like online dating, I think. Really? <laughs> I think so. In what way? That, you know, the people like who are just swiping, 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 you're always going to find something better. Just keep adding to the arsenal of possibility um, as opposed to just finding, you know, a true connection. I think that's um, <laughs> the title of our podcast today. Homeopathy is online dating. No, it's, it's more than Tinder. <laughs> but you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah? So, like, the question to Hahnemann is, like, okay, so you went through, like, you spent a lifetime evolving into this incredible set of discoveries that are not just, like, everybody focuses on, you know, Cinchona and blah, 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 and, you know, how, in the early parts. And I, I, think, I think the action is later. But you need to follow the breadcrumbs along the way, right? So, so the question for Hahnemann is kind of what the hell is homeopathy and, and what did you learn? Like, where did you get to? That's two questions. Two, it's a two-part question, yeah. I mean, look, by the time you can ask a dead person these questions, you might as well ask two. Okay, I've got two. Okay, but then, so then, like, what is the possibility so that we know how we can apply it best? Mm-hmm. And then I need... What's his name? Um, not Hughes, not Dudgeon. Hale. I need, I need Hale because Hale is the person who, well, either Hale or Sophie, Melanie's adopted daughter, married to Carl uh, Car- Benninghausen. Yeah, uh, Benninghausen's son. So one of the two of them, depending on who you ask, filled in the footnote to aphorism 270, I think it's 270G, mm-hmm. um, which is the um, formulation for the, you know, how ha- the mathematical um, application to get to the 50 millesimal potency, mm-hmm. which is basically the extraction of spirit from matter. So of course it would be, you know, there'd be some mystery around it. So I would want to know whether or not what Hale or Sophie filled in is accurate and yeah those are my questions what are yours why did you leave transylvania oh you do you really care about that oh yeah really i want to know what happened to make him leave real quick so hahnemann was in transylvania in sibiu romania from 1777 to 1779 he was there for i think it was like 19 months Mm -hmm. And so there's this controversy. So, and, and what he was doing there was he was curating the Baron von Bruckenthal's library. And the Baron von Bruckenthal was, he was an interesting character. Um, oh, and, and we went there. Well, I was there for quite some time. Al joined me um, at the end. Well, quite some time. I was there for like 10 days. Mm. It felt like a really long time. Um, but uh, the Baron von Bruckenthal, he was, a, he was a mason. He was the sort of the head of the Masonic... Um, I don't know, whatever, brotherhood, of that whole part of um, that eastern part of Europe. And he's the one who made Hahnemann a mason. What was it, October 
7th. I remember the date just because I learned the fact on that day, which mm. seemed pretty interesting. And there's no evidence. Well, there's, I should say there's very little evidence that Hahnemann continued on, at least overtly, in expressing any no. sort of affinity. He did sign some things, brother. Um, but, but he was there curating the library, and he was the you know, he was the doctor of, or for the Baron's family, but he... Including his daughters. Including his daughters. We saw paintings of the daughters. <laughs> Al had this whole thing, we went to this museum there, and the Baron's daughters, and Al was trying to figure out which one of them Hahnemann might have been handy with, which led to his departure. Of course, you're going to, like, make it into something pervy. Uh, <laughs> but the, or the, the lost coin. The legend goes that he stole a coin or something. But the folks in Transylvania don't, you know, I, I spent time, I spent quite a lot of time talking to the, the you know, sort of historians and curators there. Isn't that interesting? You want to know the deep and heavy and sweaty um, philosophical stuff. I just want the salacious gossip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, I'd like to know that as well. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the thing is that um, the people in Transylvania don't think he stole a coin. And what they think is that he um, copied. So, so Hahnemann was was cataloging the Baron's library. So what I was doing when I was there was I went through this book. It was like six inches tall, maybe five inches tall, and it was a series of folios. And those folios were um, Hahnemann had a scribe or an assistant who worked with him, and and it was just the two of them going through and writing down every single title of every book that that was there, and and so. And, and there are some things I took a whole bunch of photos of the of the folios because there are some markings, like there's some numbers and things that I haven't been able to figure out what they represent. Anyway, but the um, the thought is that he copied some books. So you know, back then, they, people you didn't just like go to Barnes and Noble. Um, so people would actually literally copy a book, and there are a few books that it is thought that Hahnemann copied, and that Baron von Brückenthal was not excited about. Um, and, and I, if I had to guess, I mean, I, I don't want to say what the books were cause I, I, I don't want to, in case it's not correct, but, but if I had to guess though, Hahnemann didn't know what to do with those books or had an idea about those books and, and copied them and carried them with him. And I think they became a later influence because he didn't apply he didn't apply that information until after 1816. Because what he then did is he finished off his degree at Erlingen and then he disappeared for a year. Yeah, there's no evidence of where he was for about a year. And Hale, who's one of Hahnemann's biographers, he he says, you know, there's no there's um, no evidence evidence of where he was, but it's suspected that he was studying metallurgy and geology and metallurgy. Yeah, mm. which amazing makes sense, right? Well, it only makes sense if you put it in the context of iatrochemistry. And, you know, and then he winds up marrying Johanna Henrietta or Henrietta Johanna. Both which, ways. Yeah, I've seen it both ways. And sometimes I've seen it where she's referred to, in which I was confused for a while because there are some texts where she's referred to both as Henrietta and Johanna. Yeah. Yeah, interchangeably. Anyway, but her father was a, was a chemist, was a pharmacist. And had a, you know, had a, a lab, <laughs> the 18th century equivalent of a lab um, in, his, in his house. Um, 
So, yeah, so Hanuman, so there's some some mysteries in the earlier years, but I mean that's a curious set of information to amass, you know, sort of the the well, I'm, I'm sort of hesitant to say, but the, some of the texts that he's believed to have copied uh, have to do, there's sort of numerology and magic. And when you say magic, I, I worry because people then take it into like, oh my God, masons and magic, you know, devil. It's not that, you know, back at that, in those times, it was, you know, magic was, you know, philosophy, science was magic, philosophy, poetry, you know, mathematics, these things were all, you know, there's a schmear across them all. So, um, yeah. So that's so you want to know why he left in a hurry from Transylvania? Do you think he left on foot? No, he caught the what is it? The Cobb and Co. The Wells Fargo Express. I don't know. He would have got a horse <laughs> and buggy or something. Which Whatever. is how he discovered potency. Not. <laughs> Not. I mean, you know, that's really interesting. I mean, how? See, there's too many gaps. Yeah, there's Too many gaps in the history. Yeah, like one of the things I tried to figure out was... I mean, you know, to, a, to a, a, a reader who's really trying to understand the secrets of what is homeopathy, it doesn't matter. You know, did he walk on foot or did he get yeah. the train, which didn't exist. Um, but, you know, to a person interested in who was he? Yeah. You know, what, what influenced him? You know, yeah. just um, more granular... Daily questions. They're just, there's only fragments. There's really only fragments. It's really true. Like, mm. one of the things, so, like, for example, trying to find information about the authors, like Hale. I've been trying to figure out oh, about Hale. Yeah. And it's really hard to find information about him. But one of the things I'm curious about is not just how his mode of transport for leaving Transylvania, but how he got there. Because he was in Vienna and he ran out of money and he got the job in Transylvania, right? So, how did he get? Did he travel alone? Did he travel with the Baron? Yeah, that's that's my understanding. He traveled with the Baron. Yeah. From well, again, you know, I'm not I'm I'm not gonna stake anything on that. I mean, right. That's my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things, just since we're in Transylvania, <laughs> like the the first time, you know, like they didn't let me in for a while. Remember, I had to. It, it took like five days before they let me into. Yeah. Right. The library. I felt like, you know, going to the rabbi's door and kept knocking. Please, may I come in? Give me those gloves. Let me see. Um, And, you know, when I... But so while I'm waiting and I went, you know, I had a bunch of meetings. I went to these lectures. They they had a conference that I didn't know I had to speak at. It was quite quite a time. Anyway, but walking where Hahnemann walked and they have this museum of... It's a, you know, Museum of Homeopathy and Pharmacy. And they had, who's the guy? Remember the painting of the um, Islamic doctor? Do you remember that? Now I forget. I forget who he was. It was not, it was not Jabir. You mean Ibn Riza? Ibn Riza. Is one, but from I'm, oh, I need my lecture notes from the eight, eighth century, ninth century mm-hmm. around then. I'm going to say, yep. So they've got this painting of him. So there's an acknowledgement of the acquisition of information. Oh, oh, I see what you're through, saying. Right, right. That that ultimately was integrated into Hahnemann's um, development of potency. Mm. That uh, Islamic mathematics from the 
Yeah, which my research definitely... In Western Europe, the Dark Ages. Yeah, so, right, so Dark Ages in Western Europe, then that information makes its way, you know, to Western Mm -hmm. Europe and becomes Latinized, Mm -hmm. right, in the 12th or 13th century. Yeah. 13th century, I think. And, yeah, and so, you know, there are scholars who have published, actually, there's someone who did a PhD that you know, has all this logic as to how Hahnemann was not involved with alchemy and, and makes a few assumptions about the lack of Islamic information available to Hahnemann. And it's like, well, A, was Latinized and, you know, and B, there are pseudonyms. So like there's, I think that there are some assumptions that have been made because we're, you know, we learn over time, right? And we apply new bits of information to ask questions. So like going back through, every time I go back through some of the biographical information about Hahnemann, it's like another clue comes because it's asking a different set of questions with, you know, more information. What's your second question to Hahnemann? You said you had two. What happened in the three days? No, not what happened in the three days, but just, yeah, tell me about the three days. You know, when Melanie knocked on the door. Oh. <laughs> oh my gosh. Another salacious thing. You really. Oh, it's the only interesting thing. So. You know, what last time, what, you know. You've I mean, got just to think about that. You need to give more context here. Well, Melanie turns up in Curtin, having. Uh, Melanie, Hahnemann's second wife. So Hahnemann had been widowed for, I think, seven years at that point. Something like yeah, that? Yeah, 1835. Yeah. Yep. And so he's, you know, he's approaching. She arrived in 30. Was it in 1833? 35. Was, at 35, he's 80 years old. He was 80. No. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. 70, 55. 1835. 80 years old. So they were only together for eight years. Uh-huh. It always seems so much. Well, yeah. Okay. So anyway, so so Hahnemann's widowed. He's living with <laughs> he's living with two of his daughters, yeah. and he's got you know, he's he's tired. He's been busy, <laughs> he's tired. and he's Mel- still working. He's still working, and Melanie, who we talked about in a previous podcast, because you know, oh, that's right. The vindication of Melanie is so important, but but she rolls up because she's got what was described as a tic de la rue mm. in her abdomen. Mm. And she is said to have traveled dressed as a man mm-hmm. and for a variety of reasons, including safety and, you know, finding the company of women boring and traveling with men to be more exciting and so on and so forth. And then she, you know, she goes to see the good Dr. Hahnemann and leaves three days later. <laughs> And and missing from the case notes, missing and from his case, case books are, are missing. yeah, that her page. case notes are missing. Yeah. I say that's just a HIPAA thing. That's t- no, early that's, HIPAA. That's uh, what do you call it? That's, a romance novel, a bodice ripper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, uh, there's got to be a person out there with with a good imagination and good writing skills. Maybe you could write that one over the summer as well. Yeah, I'll put that on my list. Three days. The three days. The three days. I wonder what they talked about. Because, you know, I mean, it's it's not a bodice ripper. She had written, she had read The Organon. Right. You know, there's there's got to be a, there's got to be something really 
amazing that went on between them. <laughs> well, I'll say. Yeah. No, because, I mean, he was... He totally fell in love. Yeah. His, uh, his letters to Berninghausen and, uh, and to his other family members and other homeopaths are just... They're, they're amazing. Yeah. And there's so many ways to weave it into an alchemical tale. Oh. Which we, we don't have time to do today. No, we're not going to do that. But um, we do have uh, lots to do this summer. We have 13 weeks before school starts. I can't believe it. And the first thing that happens, I'm super excited because we have our team retreat. Um, every summer oh, we yeah. do a team retreat and people start arriving next Tuesday. Carly arrives mm-hmm. and then Andrea and then the whole gang. Um, so at AHE, we, um, this kind of started by, it started by happenstance. Um, before COVID, um, it might've been 2019 that we started doing this, but, um, the conference, JHC conference and the AHE graduation were scheduled just a week apart. Mm. So everyone came to graduation and then stayed on until the conference. And we all traveled to the conference together and it turned out to be this incredible work week. And so we've done a work retreat every year, even during COVID people traveled um, and we block out a week and it's all meetings and fun. And um, this year, Oh, there are quite a few people coming. Our house will be full. We've rented a few Airbnbs. There'll be a lot of food and cooking, a lot of meetings that take place in the kitchen, outside. Last year, we were sitting around the pool. Uh, that was amazing. Yeah. Our mm. pool, is a, it's a kiddie pool. It's, a kiddie pool. Um, but we had a big meeting. All of us were in the pool or around the pool. There were computers and notes. It's really the Path best. making path making right um parker and alistair were laying bricks during the meeting um so the paths were being it's just the best week and we really is it's but it's also a review you know it's it's it's, we tried this let's review it what happened you know yeah we we take notes uh, all year long so when students give us feedback you know we take it into account. So we kind of take notes of everything, all the classes of a class, if we need more time, less time, do we need to add a new topic or things out of order? I mean, we, then we go and we like literally take the thing apart, dust it off and put it back together again, which is so important. That's next week. I can't wait. All right. And of course we'll make the dates, the AHE signature dish. Wow. Yeah. The dates. I reckon you should keep that secret. They're delicious. Um, All right. This didn't turn out as we'd planned. It never turns out the way we planned. No. Why plan? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for caring about homeopathy. See you again. AHE is changing the face of homeopathy education by raising the bar through rigorous academics and unparalleled clinical training delivered live through the soulful use of cutting-edge technology. AHE prepares its students to become fully rounded homeopathic practitioners from anywhere in the world. Apply today at ahe.online.